Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. And let's read from the beginning of the chapter for context. Romans 8, starting in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray. Father, again, we come humbly before you this morning, recognizing that this is the word of the living God. We know, Father, that we can do nothing of spiritual good. We can have no spiritual understanding apart from you, Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law this morning. Convict us of our sin. May we turn to you and live with abundance of life, for surely this is why Christ came. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your presence among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Romans 8 has been a wonderful journey so far, and I think that we have seen uh, that Paul is connecting the bigger theme, the, the theme of Romans, which is justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, to this chapter, chapter 8. He, he left off talking about justification at chapter 5. He now comes back to his same thought, and he wants us to understand this cardinal truth, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And why is that so important that we need to know this here and now. Because as Paul has just brought us through Romans chapter 7, we saw that the law of God, when it comes to a man in power, when it comes to him and slays him, it, it, it opens his eyes to see that he is a sinner, that he is full of sin, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. When that kind of conviction comes upon a man's life and he sees that he is wretched, that he is miserable, blind, and poor in the sight of the Lord, spiritually speaking, that man feels condemned. That woman, that child feels condemned. And the message of Scripture and the message that the Spirit of God wants us to understand is don't trust your feelings. Trust the Word of the living God. And if you are in Christ this morning, you are not condemned. You are justified. God's wrath has been completely turned away from you. You will never suffer the fires of eternal hell and torment knowing that you have sinned against the living God forever and ever. That will never happen to you in Christ. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And we've been learning that that means that we've been grafted into Christ. We've been joined to Christ supernaturally by the Spirit of life. Verse 2 of chapter 8, this law of the Spirit of life is this governing power, this ruling principle of the Spirit of life, which is another way of saying the Spirit of the living God, who has done what? He set us free from the law of sin and death or the governing power of sin and death that used to preside over us, each one of us. We were governed, we were ruled by, we were dominated by our own sinfulness and the lust of our flesh. And there was no way out 
So the law came to us and it really crushed us. It held us down. It pronounced us guilty. But the Lord in his grace and kindness has picked us up and pulled us out from that situation. In fact, he's brought us to life spiritually by his spirit. He's linked us to the perfect redemptive work of Christ, which we read about in verse 3 of chapter 8. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, weak through us, through our flesh, our sinfulness, we were not able to keep the law of God. So God did what we could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not as a sinner, but as one who could represent sinners. Who was fully man and yet divine, without sin, from his birth and in his life. Able to come on account of sin, to lay down his life as a perfect and suitable offering for sin. And what did he do as our substitute He condemned sin in the flesh, in his own flesh for us. So that, so that, the righteous requirement of the law, which we learned is the righteousness of the law, the very character of God, which is reflected in his law, his holiness, his justice, and his goodness, that God's character would be fulfilled, literally filled up in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that walk means a pattern of life. It's a new pattern of life. This is the newness of life that we have been called to and raised from the death to do. This is the new pattern of life for the Christian. It doesn't describe every single step. Surely we all sin. We sin a lot. God help us. But the new trajectory of our lives, loved ones, is no longer enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to righteousness, and we have the power to obey Christ because His Holy Spirit dwells in us. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. So Paul last week showed us that you know what your true nature is. You know if you're somebody who is in the flesh, meaning somebody who is still dominated by that corrupt nature that you received from Adam, unregenerate, unsaved, you know if you're that person if you set your mind on the things of the flesh. If, you, if your heart is drawn to the things of this earth, to the things that this earth can offer and to the things that your flesh can experience, from the things of this earth. If that's the natural inclination of your heart and you love those things, then you're still fleshly in nature. You've not been born again. You're not saved is what he's saying. We know who we are in our nature by our mindedness, by what we love to muse on in our minds, to be absorbed in thought with when there's no pressure, when we can just have time to think. Where do we go in our minds? So we spent last week talking about that, I think, at length. Today, Paul's going to peel this onion a little bit further. And he does that because you see all of these verses that begin with the word for. For, meaning I'm going to explain what came prior. And so he's building thought upon thought upon thought. And today, I want to look at verse 6 with you in particular. And we want to look at this root of the mindedness we talked about last week. We understand that those who are unsaved set their minds on the flesh as the pattern of their lives. Those who are saved and who are spirit-filled set their minds on the things of the Spirit as the pattern of their lives. Why? What's the proof of your mindedness? This is really the big idea for today. There's one point again. We'll keep it simple. The big idea for today is here's how you know your mindedness. The proof of it is this. Are you dead or are you alive, spiritually? You're one or the other. There's no middle ground. Let's look at this together. Verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
the um, English Standard Version reads, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. And you, and you get a similar sense from the New American Standard, from the LSB. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. And so it sounds like Paul is saying it's the activity of the mind that we set our minds on, or those who set their minds on fleshly things are death. But really what he says in the Greek here is, for the mind of the flesh, death. That's what he says. He's talking about the mind, the natural disposition of the heart which is expressed in the thought life of an individual. That's the mind. And he says, the mind of the flesh, the mind that belongs to the flesh, that originates in our fallen humanity, is death. And he contrasts that with, but the mind of the spirit, life and peace. So, not so much spiritual mindedness or fleshly mindedness in verse 6, but what is the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit? He's contrasting two types of mind. Previously, we had looked at two kinds of people, those whose nature is flesh, those whose nature is spirit. Now we're looking at two kinds of mind. And he says in the first case, the mind of the flesh death. Now, I want you to notice he does not say the mind of the flesh leads to death. He's already discussed that idea. If you go back to chapter 6, there's several verses here that convey this idea, but look with me at verse 16 of chapter 6. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or leading to death is the inference, or of obedience leading to righteousness. Verse 19 of chapter 6, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So this is the idea of a progression. An obedience to sin leads to more sin. And death. But here Paul is saying something a little different. He says, The mind of the flesh itself is death. Death in the Greek is the word for separation. And there's really three senses of death that we understand from Scripture there's a separation of the body from the soul, that's a physical death of a person. There's a separation of the soul from God and from the life of God, that's called spiritual death. And then there is the separation of the body and soul of a person from the life of God forever, and that's called eternal death. So Paul is saying the mind of the flesh is itself separation. Separation from what? Well, in chapter 8, verse 1, those that are in Christ are those who are not condemned. Those who are joined to Christ, who are united to Him, are the ones who are not condemned. So those who are outside of Christ are the ones who are dead, or the ones who are spiritually dead. That's this mind that we're talking about. The mind of the flesh is separated from God. And last time we looked at several examples of what it means to set our minds on the things of the flesh and how subtle it can be and even right-sounding it can be to do that. But today we want to dissect this a little bit further, this mind of the flesh, and we want to see how it operates. We want to look at the, um, the mind of the flesh and how it came to being. So I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at this origin of the mind of the flesh together. In Genesis chapter 3, we come back to the Garden of Eden and to the temptation of man. Let's look together at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the, in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. 
Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. So here we have, really, the picture of spiritual death and where it began with regard to mankind. We read in verse 7 that after the serpent had tempted Adam and Eve and they partook of the fruit, that their eyes were opened. Both of their eyes were opened. That's, that's interesting because their eyes physically were open when they saw this fruit and they took it. So the word is not talking about their physical eyes there. The eyes of their conscience were opened for the first time to see that they had disobeyed God. And immediately they knew that they were naked. Well, they were naked before, but it wasn't a problem for them. They never sensed a a nakedness. But now nakedness comes to their minds, to their consciences as a lack of covering, as an exposure, as a a guiltiness and a vulnerability that they didn't have before. This is all to do with the eyes being opened. You look back at verse 5, and what is this lie of the devil? The devil is very crafty. He said, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The craftiness of our enemy is that part of what he says is true. When they ate, their eyes were opened. They knew something of evil, but it was not the the kind of knowledge that he had packaged for them and led them to believe, that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. They came to know evil experientially. They became evil. God is not evil. God is not the author of sin, and he cannot lead anyone into sin by way of temptation. God knows about evil objectively, but they came to know evil subjectively, and the eyes of their conscience were pricked. They were opened. So they first experience shame. They know that they're naked, and they try to fix it in an interesting way. Look at their response in verse 7, the second half of verse 7. They knew they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves Coverings. They, they, they made a physical covering for a spiritual nakedness. You cannot fix a spiritual problem with any kind of work of the flesh. We should learn that from this text. Guilt is never fixed by leaves. The conscience cannot be touched by human hands. Then notice what comes in next. Look at verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They had had fellowship with God to this point. They had no reason to hide from the Lord. The Lord was a friend to them. But after they disobeyed the voice of the Lord and they sinned, fear comes into the picture. Fear, which is a byproduct of sin, a God-intended byproduct, just like shame. And God, rather than being a close friend, now becomes perceived as a judge, one who comes to punish their disobedience. And what is their response to this fear? They hide from the Lord. They hide from the Lord God in His own garden. Can anyone hide from the Spirit of God? If I go to the highest heavens, you are there. If I go to the lowest depths of the oceans, you are there. Where can I go to escape your spirit? 
Fear is never removed from trying to hide from judgment. So what are we seeing? We're starting to see what I would call the pathology, the origin, the causes, the effects of this disease called sin, which is affecting the mind of Adam and Eve in a profound way. This, loved ones, is what Paul is calling death. This is spiritual death. When sin entered the world through their disobedience, a separation occurred. And you see it first in their hearts and minds, or their souls. A separation from God. Their faculties of thinking spiritually, of loving God, of enjoying Him, of seeking to please Him, all of that is corrupted. And rather than turning to God after sinning, they turn away from Him. They turn away from Him to themselves in order to come up with solutions, so-called, to deal with their shame and their fear. Solutions which are totally inadequate and really irrational. And then I want you to notice what comes next in verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now, do you think that God did not know the physical location of Adam in his own garden? What is God asking here when he calls to the man? Adam, where are you? I know where you are physically, but where are you spiritually? Separated is the answer, dead. And here is the evidence of that deadness. Look at verse 10. So he said, this is Adam speaking to God, I heard you, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So Adam is confessing something here. He's confessing his shame and his fear. But I want you to notice he's not confessing his sin. He doesn't confess his sin. Look at verse 11. And he said, who told you, God speaking to Adam, that you were naked? And then here comes the direct, unavoidable, probing question about Adam's sin. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? There it is. There's no wiggle room to escape. And does Adam confess his sin? What does he say? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. He points his finger to his wife. And really he blames not just his wife in doing that, but he blames the Lord, the woman you gave me. He's not willing to take responsibility for his sin. He would rather accuse his wife and God. And then Eve repeats the same thing by accusing the serpent. No one is taking responsibility and confessing their sin to the Lord. This is the mind of death. This is the mind of the flesh. It will never turn to God. It always turns away from God looking to itself to fix a spiritual problem with physical means. It it sows fig leaves to cover shame. It hides from God in an attempt to avoid punishment. It freely confesses its feelings of shame and guilt. There's no problem with that. But it will not confess its sin. It would rather blame others. Loved ones, is this not a commentary on the world and everyone in it who is not saved? Yes, people experience sorrow for their sin, but it's never a sorrowing that leads to repentance and salvation unless the Spirit of God has come upon that person and is leading them to that kind of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. The world's repentance, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, the world's sorrowing, excuse me, produces death. That's what their sorrowing leads to, not to life. It wants to take the shame and the fear out, but it can't. It's an exercise in futility because God has designed shame and fear as byproducts of sin. So this is where the mind of the flesh begins. It begins for mankind in the garden in Genesis 3. And and this is, I hope you see, nothing other than a, a commentary on the life of every man born into the world from Adam since the fall. All man has been doing in history has been sowing fig leaves to cover his shame, to hide from God, not confessing his sin, even when he's confronted directly with the truth and always blaming others. That's the pathology of the mind of the flesh. 
It always seeks its own welfare and never the welfare, the glory, and the honor of God. It has no regard for God. It only cares for itself. I want to show you more of this pathology that we have developed for us, and some of this is review for you, those of you who have been here for the last couple of years. But go back to Romans 1 with me. Romans 1 is a really good second place to go to hear about this mind of the flesh and how it's exemplified for us. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That word means to hold down or to hold back. And the sense of the word, the tense of the word is suppressing the truth. It's a constant, active suppressing of the truth in unrighteousness. Where does this suppression of the truth happen? It happens in the mind. God is revealing himself to all mankind, this text talks about, through creation. He evidences himself. He manifests the truth of God to everyone's conscience through creation. No one is an atheist by nature. Everyone is a suppressor of the truth. They know God exists, but they hold Him down in their minds and in their hearts. They don't want Him, and they don't want to glorify Him, certainly. When Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, they had a tender conscience, didn't they? They were pricked in their conscience. The shame and the fear came immediately. But what happens with man who suppresses again and again and again as God reveals truth and he constantly suppresses is he hardens his conscience. He sears his conscience so that the conscience no longer sounds as an alarm system as loudly as it did at first. So this happens in the mind, this suppression. Look at verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile, empty, vain, where? In their thoughts, in their minds, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When the Scripture talks about a darkness, it talks about it in two senses. It speaks of darkness as a lack of knowledge of the truth, but also as a lack of morality, as a love of evil, as a corruption. And so man is not thankful, he becomes futile in his thoughts, and his foolish heart is darkened, it's corrupted. He doesn't have the knowledge of God, he doesn't want the knowledge of God, and he loves his sin, he loves evil. This is Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's a defiant statement, not a a lack of knowledge statement. Look at verse 22, Romans 1. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And so here we have more of this mind of the flesh. It pronounces itself wise. It believes that it's been liberated from the knowledge of God. And what does it do? It fashions its own idea of God. It changes the glory of the incorruptible God into a foolish image that's made like corruptible man. This mind of the flesh has its own idea of who God is. It pushes its own opinion. I think God is this. It does not submit to the God of Scripture. And it prefers lies to the truth. Look at verse 25. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This mind of the flesh loves lies and darkness and prefers them to the truth, even when the darkness doesn't make any sense. It's still better than the alternative of convicting truth. So God gives them over, gives this mind over, really, to what Paul calls a debased mind in verse 28. That's a a mind that is disapproved by God, a mind that is spiritually dead and under the judgment of God, a non-functioning mind, spiritually speaking. That mind and that thinking that comes from that mind is all condemned by God. And then the coup de grace, if you will, in verse 32 is, who know the penalty of their practice of sin, 
who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. (laughs) This is defiance. This is recklessness against God. A pride that exalts itself against God and says, I don't care. Even if I know that you'll punish me eternally, I'm still going to enjoy my sin, and I'm going to delight in those who commit the same sins. This is the stupidity, spiritually speaking, of the mind of the flesh. It's death. This is all that's encapsulated by this idea of death. A practice of sin, a love for sin, a defiance toward God, a self-promotion and a a self-aggrandizing, a rejection of revelation, a fashioning of its own idea of who God is, preferment of the lie, all judged by God. That, loved ones, is the reason why the world is as it is today. The mind of the flesh is rampant in the the children of wrath, those who are not saved. That is a commentary on who you and I used to be before grace came to our lives and overwhelmed us. Thank you, Lord. Colossians 1, verse 21. Listen to this. This is a description of who we used to be. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. We were alienated. That's a word that means shut out from the fellowship of God. We were estranged from God. We were separated from God. In fact, we were forced out of the garden of God by God, where he put his cherubim in the flaming sword, turning every which way to prevent sinful man from coming back into the garden and partaking of the tree of life and living forever in that condition of sin, which would be only hell. God alienated the sinner from himself, and he says in Colossians 1, you were that person. You were alienated, shut out from the fellowship and the life of God, and enemies Where? In your mind. In your mind by wicked works or in wicked works. That is the place where wicked works begin, in the mind of a person, in the heart of a person. It's not the outward deed of wickedness that God sees first and foremost. It's the wickedness of the heart that he looks on and he condemns. But thank God that's not the end of the story. You He has reconciled. He has brought back to God. He has restored to fellowship with God, a full fellowship with God. This brings us back to Romans 8.1. You're in Christ. You've been grafted into Him. You've been joined to Him spiritually so that you are now partaker of His very life and every spiritual blessing in Him. You've been reconciled to God. Where does this reconciliation occur? It occurs primarily in the mind. What's so interesting, though, and we're going to get to this, I think, next week, Lord willing, is that this alienation that occurs in the mind is actually not reconcilable. The mind of the flesh is not reconcilable. The Scripture says that it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. That mind is forever alienated from God. So what does God do? He has to give us a new mind. He reconciles us by giving us His own mind, the mind of Christ, so that we can think His thoughts after Him. And that is what is being developed in each of us, loved ones. So, we have our pathology of the mind of the flesh, and here's the contrast. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace, or literally, but the mind of the Spirit, life and peace. I want you to notice, first of all, that the Spirit has a mind. The Spirit is not just a force. We've talked about this before. In fact, in verse 2 of Romans 8, we saw that it is the Spirit of life in Christ who makes us free. The word means He rescues us from bondage. He's a deliverer. He's not just a force. He's a person. And this person, Paul says, has a mind here in verse 6. The mind of the Spirit is life and peace. Uh, The Scripture teaches that the Spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity. We've talked about this a little bit, but I want to just give you a couple of other texts just to think about this in your mind so you understand this is God. 
This is God the Spirit, the third person of the blessed Godhead. He is described in verse 11 of chapter 8 as the one who gives life to our mortal bodies so that we can say no to sin. He empowers us. He is the one who, in verse 14, leads God's people in the direction of holiness. He leads us. In verse 15, he is the spirit of adoption who makes all of us cry out, Daddy, the cry of a little child, a born-again child, to his father, Daddy. In verse 26, he helps us in our weakness by praying for us because we don't know how to pray as we ought. Ephesians chapter 4 teaches us, also Isaiah 63, that he can be grieved. He can be grieved by our sin. He can be quenched by sin. Sin can douse his fire to some extent. Genesis chapter 6, he is the spirit who strives and contends with men. He is the one who is patiently working with sinners, exhorting them to repent In Acts chapter 7, he is resisted and refused by those who are called stiff-necked, those who are uncircumcised in heart, those who are unbelieving and hardened in heart against God. In Galatians 5, he is described as the one who sets his desire against the flesh. He actively wars against our flesh. He hates our flesh, and he fights against it. In 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he is the agent of preaching the gospel He's the one who makes the preaching of the gospel effective to the hearts of you and me. He brings his message not just to the physical ear, but to the ear of your heart, and he changes you. He convinces and convicts the sinner of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's John 16. So in all these things, you see clearly the Spirit is not a force. He is a person, and he has a mind. The mind of the Spirit is also called the mind of the Lord. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. Romans 11, verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Paul took that from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, which says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? And from Jeremiah 23, 18, For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord, and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? The mind of the Spirit is the mind of the Lord, and nobody knows the mind of the Lord but the Spirit of the Lord. And so now we have this description of the mind of the Spirit, and Paul uses two words, two interesting words that he pairs together, life and peace. The mind of the Spirit is life and peace. What does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, the mind of the Spirit is life itself. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of life, remember? So, everything He is, everything He does, everything He thinks is life and life-giving. Who is this Word of Christ, this eternal Word, excuse me, Word of God, who is life-giving, who created all things. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who created all things by the word of His power. He is the life that gives life to every man, that lights every man, that gives a conscience to every man to know the true God in creation. And this chief knowledge of the mind of the Spirit is the Lord Himself. That's the knowledge that the mind of the Lord is concerned to reveal. Listen to John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is eternal life, to know God. To enter into life is to enter into the knowledge of God. So, when the Spirit of, excuse me, the mind of the Spirit is described as life. He is life, and all who have His mind have entered into life. What does that mean? It means that we recognize that the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, loved ones, that you should recognize that fundamental truth that God is revealed in and through Jesus Christ alone. And if you know that, 
then you have eternal life. You've, you've entered into eternal life, which will only build more and more as you grow in grace in this life and into eternity. The life of God is being revealed through the knowledge of God. That is precisely what we have. And that's why Jesus thanked his Father in Matthew 11, saying, Father, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. What things? Spiritual truth from the wise and prudent, so-called wise and prudent of this world, and have revealed them to babes. Babes, those who are born again, born of the Spirit. The Lord delights in revealing his mind to his children. Not to those who are self-righteous and to those who profess themselves to be wise, but to those who know that they are fools and sinners, unclean, those who need the mercy of God. So the mind of the Spirit is life, and all who have the mind of the Spirit have entered into life, meaning we recognize that Jesus is the Christ, is God himself. And then the mind of the Spirit is also described as peace. Why? Because God is at peace with himself. Peace, meaning rest, quietness, tranquility, an absence of conflict. And, you know, as I thought about this this week, there's a a tendency, maybe a danger, that if you read a definition like that, peace being rest and quietness, you might be led in your thinking to think of peace as inactivity. But the peace of God is not inactivity. Why do I say that? Because Jesus, remember when he said in John 5, my father has been working until now and I have been working? God is always at work. God created all things by the word of his power and he sustains it by the word of his power. This world would either explode or implode if it were not for Christ holding every atom exactly in the sphere that it needs to be to balance. If our earth was slightly closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If the earth was slightly farther from the sun, we'd be an ice planet. Everything is held in a perfect balance by the Lord God Almighty, by Jesus Christ. He's always working. So how does this idea of peace then work with a God who works? Well, I want you to listen to how peace, the peace of God specifically, is described in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. Paul says, he is not a God of confusion, but of peace. There's the antithesis. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The peace of God means that he is separate from all confusion. He's separate from disorder. He's separate from chaos as he works. Everything he does is done in harmony with himself as he works. That's the peace of God. In other words, God's peace means that he is well-ordered in all his activities. He is in perfect harmony with himself. He's never in conflict with anything that he does. His works and his mind are perfectly aligned. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom, encompasses something of this. That word really means wholeness. It means completeness. It means soundness or wellness. So the mind of the Spirit is peace. God is at peace with Himself. And as you might expect, those who have the mind of the Spirit have His shalom, have His peace. What does that mean? That means that those who have have life, who've been given life by the Spirit, have entered into the knowledge of God, being the Lord Jesus Christ, and we who recognize Christ as God recognize the work of Christ. This is back to Romans 8, verse 3. Here's a wonderful summary statement of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel message that brings peace, brothers and sisters. And those who have entered into life, who recognize Christ, read this or hear this 
and they receive it gladly. They receive the message of peace, the only message which can reconcile us to God. That's why Paul said in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith. Faith in what? A faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His work that we just read. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled. We're no longer alienated. We've been brought near. And it's not just that we've been brought near. He says, through whom, Jesus Christ, we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And you might recall the word he uses there is stand firm. We stand firmly planted, unable to be moved by God's grace. We stand in His grace by His grace, permanently. That means the people who, whom God saves are always saved. They will never lose their salvation. And faith is what links us to the work of God in Christ. We believe that message. That's why He pairs life and peace together. You might think, well, peace is the third in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace. He could have said, the mind of the Spirit is life and joy, life and love. He doesn't. He says it's life and peace. Life and peace. This is the message that brings true peace to the soul. This is the message that makes it so that no matter what happens in life, brothers and sisters, no matter what happens, no matter what we lose, whether it's financial, whether it's a, a loved one, whether it's a pain that we experience in the body and in the spirit, no matter what we lose, our biggest problem of all has been solved by the Lord. He has reconciled us. He's dealt with our sin once and for all in the cross of His Son by nailing all of our sins to the cross, not just sins we committed in the past, not just sins we're committing today, but all sins, even those we have yet to commit in the future. They're all nailed to that cross. What does that do for the conscience? That is a cleansing of the conscience that no ritual or ceremony can ever touch. That's what the author to the Hebrews describes in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, when he says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, a cow, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, that's outward cleansing, ceremonial cleansing, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? Those are your sins. Those were my sins. Dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ is what alone can deal with our nakedness of conscience, our nakedness of soul that no fig leaf sowing can ever fix. It's the blood of Christ that we need applied to us to give us this peace that is once and for all established, a peace that can never be taken away no matter what else we lose in this world. That's where the joy of the Christian springs from. That's why we are the happiest people in this earth. Because our future is secured. He's given us a taste of heaven now to know that we will be given full heaven later. So we are those with the mind of the Spirit or the mind of the Lord or the mind of Christ, all synonymous terms in Scripture. We are those who acknowledge the truth of God. We know that we're sinners. We know that we've sinned against God but rather than sowing fig leaves to cover our shame, we embrace God's plan of salvation for us. We gladly apply that precious blood of the Paschal Lamb to the doorposts of our hearts. We put on the righteous robe of Jesus Christ by believing in His merit, His righteousness alone, and taking off that dirty garment of our own flesh and throwing it away, regarding it as nothing but garbage and refuse, a filthy rag. Rather than hiding from God for fear of judgment, we come to Him in humility, recognizing that we deserve hell, don't we? But rather than refusing to confess our sinfulness, when we're confronted with the truth of God, we readily confess it to Him. We say the same thing back to Him that He says to us. You're guilty, and we say, yes, Lord, you're right. 
I would rather side with you and with your law than I would rather side with me. I'm going to vindicate God and condemn self. That's what the mind of the Spirit does. Rather than blaming others for my sin, I say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That man goes home justified rather than the other who is self-righteous. Loved ones, this is the mind of the Spirit. It's life and peace. We prove our position, what we really are, if we are in a state of death or a state of life, by this truth. Do we see Christ as our Lord and Savior? Do we accept His gospel, His salvation for us? Do we accept His message of peace, which humbles the pride of man and exalts the Lord I want to just give you a couple of other things here that are qualities of this peace that we have in the Spirit so that we're clear. First of all, this peace is not a peace of inactivity. Just like we learned with regard to the Lord's peace, it doesn't mean He's inactive, right? It means that He's in perfect harmony with Himself as He works. How does that peace work in His children, in us? Well, here it is, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. God gives us peace as we work. And what's the work we do? We set our minds on him. It's just another way of saying what Jesus said in John 6. What is the work of God that we should do these works? But to believe on him whom he has sent, Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the work of God. That is setting your mind on Him. We don't just do that once to get saved. When we walked an aisle or we went to a conference or we were in church and we heard the message. It's not just a one-time thing. This is now the life of faith and belief that we've entered into. We continue to keep our minds on Him as the pattern of our lives. Again, this is the idea of a walk. We're not perfect Christians don't always keep their minds on the Savior, do they? Our minds wander, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I feel it. And yet, the pattern of our life is that He directs us back to Himself. And there's a discipline around this, brothers and sisters. We are commanded to direct our minds to Him, to focus our minds on Him and His Word. And what does He do? He orders our thinking as we set our minds on Him. He does not empty our minds. He fills our minds with the knowledge of God. He removes our confusion. He removes our doubts. He removes the chaos from our minds as we set our minds on Him. And He replaces all of that with clarity, certainty, order, confidence in the Lord. That's the peace He's talking about that you have and that I have in Him. One who is clear thinking in his mind, spiritually speaking. Philippians chapter 4, I think, describes this in a slightly different way, but same concept. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses or passes all understanding will guard your minds and hearts through Jesus Christ. So here is another example. We are not just sitting back waiting for peace to kick in. Christians are those who actively engage their minds and hearts toward the Lord. How? Well, in here, in Philippians 4, it's in prayer. In setting our minds and our hearts toward the Lord, in supplicating Him, that means seeking Him diligently, in asking Him with persistence. You remember the parable of the widow who went to the unjust judge and she asked Him again and again, day after day, for justice. And He wanted to get rid of her. He gave her justice just to get her out of His hair. And the Lord says, how much more will the Lord give you what you ask. The Lord is just. He's not an unjust judge. Plead with Him. Seek His will. Spend much time with Him in secret. 
and he will order your mind and give you peace. So in the first place, the mind of the Spirit gives us peace as we engage our minds on him. We're we're not inactive. We are active. And it's through that activity that he gives us peace. Secondly, I want you to see that this peace does not mean lack of conflict. It doesn't mean that we have no trouble. The Lord's peace works in a very different way from the world's peace. Listen to Jesus' own words in John 14, 27, speaking to his disciples from the upper room the night before he goes to the cross. He says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This is the great legacy. This is the inheritance that the Lord leaves his people, his children. His peace. And he promises his peace because he's preparing to leave them. He's going to leave them and go to the cross to die. But he knows that he's going to send his spirit to come back and indwell them. So that's ultimately going to be turned to comfort for them. But he also knows that the world is going to hate them. And he's preparing them for this with his peace. So he says in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So then Jesus finishes this section right before going to his high priestly prayer. At the end of chapter 16, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. What things? His word. His very word is what gives peace to the soul of his children. In the world you will have tribulation, pressure, trials, difficulty. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Where is this peace directed, loved ones? It's the word of Christ that he is directing to the mind. To the mind of the spirit that is in you and in me. And it's meditating on his word that gives us this peace, this peace that passes understanding, not in a vacuum, but in the midst of trouble, in the midst of trouble. There's a a phenomenon with cyclones you probably have heard of, cyclones or hurricanes. These are storm systems that can be massive that turn over the ocean typically, but they come across land. Winds that are 100 to 150, maybe upwards of 200 miles an hour turning. The phenomenon is in the very center of the storm is called the eye. And in the eye, it's calm. It's peaceful. Right next to the eye are these walls of the eye. And and I was reading a little bit about it. The way this wall was described is a ring of towering thunderstorms where the most severe weather and highest winds of the cyclone occur. What a great analogy for the Christian life. We're in the eye of the storm. It's God's presence with us in the storm, in the cyclone, that creates the peace in us. You remember when Israel was backed up against the Red Sea? They had been brought out of Egypt by the hand of Moses. They come to the Red Sea. They have no place to go. The Egyptian army is right behind them, and they're pinned in. What happens? The angel of the Lord who had been leading them before them comes behind them as a pillar of cloud and creates darkness over the camp of the Egyptians so that they can't come into the camp of the Israelites all night long. God protects his people in the tribulation, in the pressure. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to worship the gods of Babylon. They refused to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And their punishment was that they were led into a fire, a furnace, that was heated seven times its normal heat so that the person or people who were delivering these three individuals into the fire were, dist- were killed, were burned up. But then Nebuchadnezzar got up and he looked into the fire and he saw not three but four In the fire, one who was described like the Son of Man. The Lord was with his people in the fire, giving them peace so that they were not harmed. Their clothes didn't even smell burned. 
Amazing peace. Peter knew something of that as he walked on the waves of the storm, his eyes focused on Christ. And as long as he was fixed on the Lord, he was able to do the impossible. He had peace in the midst of, storm, of the storm. But when he took his eyes off the Lord, he began to sink. And graciously, the Lord catches him. He doesn't allow him to sink all the way. Friends, the way of the Lord is described as being through the sea. Psalm 77. His way is through deep waters where no one can see his footprints and he leads his people through deep waters without the waters overflowing them. This is, I think, at the heart of what David described in Psalm 23 when he said, Yea, through I walk, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Who can sit down to a meal and eat when they're surrounded by enemies? The children of God can because they have a, a peace that is supernatural, that transcends the circumstances of the moment. And this is the heart of David in Psalm 4 we read this morning. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, Make me to dwell in safety. Loved ones, you can be in the most dangerous situation in the world. The Lord alone causes you to dwell in safety in the midst of those fires, storms, trials, pressures. So peace and the peace of God is not a freedom from trouble. I put a quote on your bulletin today. Thomas Watson, he said, The world can create trouble in peace. <laughs> But God can create peace and trouble, can't He? That's right. And there are those who say, come to Christ and enjoy peace, right? You've heard the gospel presented that way. Well, that's true, but let's not be negligent to explain this truth. That peace happens in the midst of trial. That peace happens in the midst of fire. That's where He discloses Himself and His power to His people. Thirdly, I want you to see that though Christians have conflict with enemies, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil that are all set against us. The peace of God means that we are not confused about our conflict anymore. We're not confused about our conflict anymore. anymore. The world is confused. They're in conflict. They're in conflict with the Lord. They're in conflict with the conscience that He has given them, that accuses them, that yells at them every time they transgress the law of God. And they don't understand that conflict. They would rather be free of that conscience altogether. They would rather just get rid of God so they can get rid of the shame and the fear. That's their notion of peace. But the Christian is not confused. We know that we've been brought into conflict with ourselves, with the world, and with the devil. And God has given us an orderly mind to expect that conflict, right? Peter said this. He said, Beloved do not think it a strange thing concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Expect trial. Expect hardship. Expect that the Lord is going to use these things in order to refine you. To draw away your own sinfulness like dross as He purifies the gold and to strengthen your faith. That's what He's doing in the hearts of His people through trial and He gives you peace through that process. A peace that you cannot explain. I think some of you who've lost loved ones recently may understand something of this. A peace of God that transcends the sadness and despair of losing somebody. Only the Lord can provide that peace that passes understanding. So the mind of the flesh is death. It knows nothing of life and peace. The world is constantly seeking for these things. They're trying to get rid of their shame. They're trying to get rid of their guilt. Their fear, it's all masked with things that are not effective. That's what they call life and peace. But the Christian is one who has the mind of the Spirit. He has a peace that transcends circumstance. The world says, if you want peace, go away from all things that are noisy. Get quiet. Let your mind empty out and just become one with nature. That's kind of their idea of peace. God's idea of peace, I hope you see, is the very opposite. 
Fill your mind with the Word of God. Meditate on Him. Go to Him in prayer and supplicate Him. Plead with Him that He would change you to be more like Christ. That's His will. And He will honor that prayer. And in that, He will give you peace. He will order your thinking. He will dispel confusion and chaos. And He will make you a person of sound mind, spiritually speaking. We have peace by turning up the volume on the Word of God, which drowns out the noise of this world, doesn't it? That's how we have peace. Friends, do you know something of this peace this morning, this life and peace? Do you love to set your mind on the Word of God? Do you find that He comforts you in the midst of your storms? Yes, we have sleepless nights as we talked about this morning. Every Christian does, circumstantially, moment by moment, we grieve, we sorrow because of sin, because of the state of this world, because of loved ones who were not saved. We grieve, and yet there is a, a peace that surpasses all of that, that no one can touch or take away. That is a peace that comes from having the mind of the Spirit. Next time, Lord willing, we are going to look at, continue looking at this contrast. Paul's not done talking about the contrast of the flesh and the Spirit, and why it's impossible for those who are in the flesh to please God. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we want to give you praise and thanks for your self-revelation, for disclosing yourself to us, for causing us to enter into the eternal life of God, to know you, to love you, to admire you, to be restored to you, Lord, no longer shut out of the garden, but welcomed back in because Christ took our punishment. He took that flaming sword of wrath on himself so that we might have access to God, a standing before you where we can gaze at your glory, at your beauty, where we can inquire in your temple, where we can muse and experience true peace. Father, I pray that you would use each of us to be peacemakers in this world by promoting and by proclaiming this gospel of peace, this good news that there is forgiveness for sin in Christ alone. And for those who are willing to lay aside their self-righteousness and entrust themselves wholly to Christ, they can and will be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your mind. Keep us this week as we are tempted, as we battle the flesh and the world and the devil. Lord, keep your people. Preserve them in the storm. Manifest yourself to them that they would praise your name and to know that you are God walking among us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.